Notice with me 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. I'll read from the English Standard Version. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So today I want to continue talking about pulling down strongholds. This is the fourth message in this series, so I would strongly encourage you to go back and hear the previous messages. A stronghold is a well-protected fortress, a base of operations from which to launch attacks. The strongholds that Paul is referring to in this verse must come from the enemy because we're not destroying any kind of stronghold that God has built in us. A stronghold is a pattern of thinking that is contrary to the truth of God's Word. A stronghold is a pattern of thinking that is contrary does not agree with the truth of God's Word. It is, a stronghold is a mindset that is based on deception that the devil uses to control us or to take advantage of us. Now, friends, this is very important. If we do not destroy the strongholds in our life, the strongholds will destroy us. You see, you need to understand something from the Word of God. All of us are in the midst of a spiritual war, and the battlefield is your mind. I said the battlefield is your mind. Now, let me refer you to another passage of Scripture. Turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. In this verse, Paul, he said that a minister, a man of God, must not be quarrelsome or argumentative. You know, some people love to debate. They love to lock horns with everybody they bump into in the church or, or, you know, in the town. But a man of God, it goes on to say, must correct his opponents with gentleness. Everybody say gentleness. Mm, you say it gently. That's nice. Must correct his opponents with gentleness. Why? Why? Notice it goes on to say, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, so that God, talking about those who are his opponents, so that God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. One translation says this, perhaps God will change their mind. Then again, another translation says this, God's Word translation says, God will allow them to change the way they think and act and lead them to know the truth. So it's interesting, he's talking about people who are opposing the preaching of God's Word. So he didn't say, so that we might be able to convince them, so that we can win the debate, so that we can triumph in the argument. He said, so that God 
would open their eyes. You see, he's saying the same thing. The weapons of our warfare are not natural. They're not fleshly. It's not based on your personality and ability, but it's mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And he continues in verse 26. Again, this is 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now notice verse 26. And he's still still talking. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's interesting. Now, here's the question. Are these verses that we just read, are they referring to sinners who have rejected the gospel message of salvation? Or is Paul talking about Christians who refuse to embrace the teaching of God's Word. Well, here's a few clues. Keep in mind that Paul, by the Spirit of God, of course, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Timothy was given the charge over the church in Ephesus. In other words, he was pastoring at that time. In fact, if you go back to verse 23, Paul tells Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels. Well, Paul's not talking about controversies in the world, like who shot JFK, you know, and and things like that. He's talking about divisive religious issues that don't edify anybody and only cause strife in the church. He's talking about something in the church. And notice he says this also, Again, he says that they may come to their senses and may escape from the snare of the devil. So what he's saying is if God gives them grace to change their thinking, then they can escape from the situation they're in. God will give them grace to change their thinking. That means they can't do it on their own. They, grace is God's ability to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. For example, we are saved by God's grace because none of us can save ourselves. You understand? Hallelujah. So if God gives them grace to change their thinking, then he says they will come to their senses. In other words, they will realize their error. In Luke chapter 15, verse 17, we read that the prodigal son, The story of the prodigal son, when he was hungry and broke, it says he came to himself. You know, one pastor in America said, you know, he was so poor, he sold his coat. And then when that money was gone, he sold his shirt. And then when that money was gone, he sold his undershirt. And when that money was gone, he came to himself. Right, well, so he he came to himself. The God's Word translation says he came to his senses. The same expression. So think about it. The prodigal son, this is a story of a father's son, not an enemy, not a stranger, but a son who went astray. 
And while feeding pigs, which of course is a nasty job. Now, some people really, you know, like that work and God bless you, we all appreciate you. But, you know, it's not a pleasant job, especially for a kosher Jew. It's really unpleasant. But while feeding pigs, it dawned on him that he had been wrong. See? So he decided to return to his father's house. So that means in this story, this person made two life-changing decisions. First, he made a really bad choice to leave his father's house. But then he made a really good choice to come back home. Hallelujah. And it all began when he came to his senses. He realized I've been wrong. It's a great day in your life when you realize you've been wrong. (laughs) You know, your wife will celebrate. It's a great day. (laughs) Amen. And again, notice the verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It goes on to say, they may come to their senses and escape. Escape from what? The snare of the devil. So before a man can be free, he must come to his senses. He must have, we could call it an epiphany moment. In other words, before there is a change in his life, there must be a change in his thinking. So you, you see a pattern here throughout the Bible. Deception brings bondage. If you're bound in some area of your life, you have believed a lie. Because Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So with revelation, it's not just the truth that sets you free. It's when you know the truth, you see. So with revelation comes liberty. Praise the Lord. So deception and everything the devil does involves deception. Deception is difficult to root out. Because by definition, the deceived don't know that they are deceived. It's difficult to deal with because everybody else knows you're wrong, but you don't. See, generally speaking, I mean, this may not always be true, but generally speaking, the poor know they're poor. Generally speaking, it may not always be true, but generally speaking, the sick know they're sick. You don't need to go into the ICU and say to grandpa, grandpa, you're sick. He's going to say, duh. I mean, he knows that already. But the deceived never know they're deceived. And so that means you think everybody else is wrong and I'm right. Everybody else is sick. Everybody else is poor, spiritually speaking, but I'm right. Deception means when you are sure, you are confident that you're right, but actually you're dead wrong. Are you listening to me? So here's the deal. If life is a pigsty for you, I mean figuratively speaking, then ask yourself this question. What is the lie that I have believed? Because I shouldn't be here. This is not what God intends for me. What's, something's wrong. This is not right. I shouldn't be bound with addictions. I shouldn't be living under a cloud of dark depression. 
Hmm? I shouldn't tear up every relationship that I have because I'm afraid for people to get too close to me. Something's wrong here. What is the lie that I have believed? Amen. Now notice again, he talks about a snare. Again, back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, a snare. A snare is not a drum in this context. A snare is a trap. A snare is a trap for catching birds or wild animals. So here's my question again. Is the devil setting traps to capture sinners? Is the devil setting traps to capture sinners? No. Why not? He doesn't need to. They already belong to him. He doesn't need to capture them to do his will. They're spiritually dead. It's their nature to sin. You don't have to do anything. Just turn them loose, and they just, they just do his will easy, no problem. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, 44, John chapter 8, verse 44, he said to them, you are of your father, the devil. Now, don't you know that upset them greatly? <laughs> they probably swallowed their dentures when he said that. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And that's true of all sinners, not just them. Amen? So again, the question is, is is Paul talking about sinners who have been snared and captured by the enemy? Or is he talking about Christians? Well, let's look at another verse. 1 Peter 5, 8. Are you still here, still watching? Amen? Don't change the channel. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. So that means we shouldn't be silly. We should be serious. It doesn't mean be sour. Uh, some people are just, you know, always a stick in the mud. They have no sense of humor. They're no fun to be with, you know, and, and, they, and they're expert fault finders. But, you know, but we, we can be serious about the things of God, but not sour. Be sober-minded, be watchful. That means be alert to danger, be watchful, be vigilant, right? Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Friend, the devil is not the world's adversary. He's their ruler. He's their father. They're on his team. The devil is our adversary. By the way, If he is our adversary, then it's not hard to imagine where adversity comes from. It comes from him. So God is not your adversary. God is not your enemy. God is for you. He's not against you. I hope you know that. Amen? But the, so God is for you. The devil is against you. God is a good God and the devil is a bad devil. And they haven't traded places in 2,000 years. It's not like, you know, back in the 70s, God and the devil said, I'm tired of being good. And the devil said, I'm tired of being bad. Well, let's trade. No, they haven't traded places. They're still the same way. Amen. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Satan is not looking for someone to devour in the world. 
He's already devoured them. Peter's writing to Christians. He's looking for someone in the church to destroy. The Holloman Christian Standard Bible says this, that he's looking for anyone he can devour. Can the enemy consume just anybody he pleases? No, he can't. I said he can't. If he could just destroy anybody he wishes, he would not have to walk about looking for someone he could devour. He would just, who's ever nearby? Oh, he'd, bloop, bloop. he'd just kill every Christian. Well, it's all done. Okay, finished. If the enemy could, he'd kill every Christian today. Boom, that's it. Okay, then the whole world has no hope of hearing the gospel. It's all gone. But he can't do that. Sometimes the enemy will bring intimidating thoughts to you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your family with COVID. I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill you with COVID. I'm going to kill you when, when you're on that airplane. I'm going to kill you on that bus. I'm going to kill you. Oh, why is he telling you what he's going to do? Why doesn't he just go ahead and do it? Why is he sending you telegrams? Why is he sending you all these love letters? Because he can't do it unless you start believing him. Hmm? Praise the Lord. See, the Bible says in verse 9, the very next verse, 1 Peter 5, verse 9 says, resist him, firm in your faith. It doesn't say if the devil wants to devour you, well, you know, sorry, that's just the way it's going to be. and You can't do anything about it. No, 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 no. It says resist him, oppose him. So the enemy cannot destroy you without your consent. I said, the enemy cannot destroy your life, and I'm talking to Christians now, without your consent. Amen. Again, let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. It says, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So in this verse, I say to you that Paul is talking about Christians. Christians who have wandered away from the truth. So that means there are children of God in Paul's day and in our day who have been captured. They are spiritual POWs. These are his words. These are, this is God's word. After being captured by him. Captured by God? No. Captured by the enemy to do the enemy's will. By the way, it's interesting. Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy. He wrote them from prison. Not from the sandy beaches of L.A., but from prison. But though his body was bound, his mind and his spirit were free. In fact, Paul was freer in jail than most of you are out of jail. See, his prison was made out of maybe stones and iron bars, but yours is in your mind and in your heart, and that prison goes wherever you go. So you can break out of a physical location, but you cannot break out of yourself. So that's far worse so you may, you know, know someone in the central jail or, or you may have pity on those who are incarcerated and okay, but 
there are so many people on this side of the wall and they're in a much worse condition. They're POWs. The devil's primary target is your mind. If he can capture your thoughts, he can ruin your life. And that's what we've been talking about for the past three weeks. Now let's move on. In Psalm 119, verse 165, I'm going to read this verse from the Passion Translation. Psalm 119, verse 165. This is wonderful. There is such great peace. Somebody say peace. There is such great peace and well-being that comes to the lovers of your word. Do we have any lovers of God's word? Hmm? Hmm? I mean, there's lots of people who are in love with all sorts of things. Some of them are lovers of Korean pop music. Some of them are lovers of Hindi serials, you know. Some of them are lovers of, uh, of style. Fashion is their passion. But how many lovers of God's word? Some, some Christians don't even seem to like God's word. You say, let's open our Bibles, and they yawn. When we say it's time to eat, you know, Akane, they don't yawn. They, they, they lick their lips. <laughs> Do we have any lovers of God's word here? It says, notice this, notice this, notice this. Passion translation, and they will never be offended. One of the most common ways Christians are taken captive by the enemy is by being offended. Hallelujah. I know some of you are offended to hear that, but it's true. <laughs> In other words, having an offense is a major stronghold in the lives of many people. Oh, I mean, they're saved, baptized in water, filled with the Holy Ghost, shundai, untie my bow tie, they sing in the choir, they help with the children, they usher, they greet, you know, whatever, they volunteer, but they've got a stronghold in their mind. They're offended. They're deeply offended. When a person is offended, he feels insulted. <laughs> what? <laughs> or he feels mistreated. He's disgruntled and resentful, and in his mind, he's a victim. All those who are offended have a victim mentality. And you can't have a victim mentality and a victor mentality at the same time. They have a victim mentality. They see themselves a victim of cruelty or unfairness. What happened to me is not right. And offended people have a story to tell. And they feel inspired to tell everybody they meet. I mean, it could be a total stranger, you know, on the train, but they're going to tell them, let me tell you my story, my sad story. Let me share with you the poison that's in my soul. So we said earlier that a snare means a trap. So the devil knows how to set traps. I said the devil knows how to set traps. And, and the word snare suggests you know, included in that word is the thought of trickery or cunning. 
See, fish don't bite a shiny hook in the fishery pond or in the river. You don't just throw a little hook in there and they go, look, there's a hook, bite it. They they don't do that. Even if they're dumb fish, they don't do that. You have to bait it. So that the fish bites the bait and gets caught on something else, right? You know, mice, I don't know, probably, you know, maybe you have lots of mice in your house. Maybe it's your best friend. I don't know, but, you know, mice, you know, they don't willingly just, you know, scurry into a cage and say, here I am in the morning, you can kill me. No, no, they go for the cheese. And when they do, the door slams shut on them. Are you listening to me? Hallelujah. Now, consider the scripture verse. Keep that thought in your mind. Ephesians 6.10 says this, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Well, armor suggests battle. Armor suggests contest. Armor suggests opposition. Warfare. Put on the whole armor of God. Part of the armor? No, the whole armor of God. Why? Why should I do that? That you may be able to stand. So if you're not standing, you forgot to put something on. You're missing something. That you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. Did you notice it doesn't say this? It does not say so that you may be able to stand against all the overwhelming power of the devil. It doesn't say that. It's his schemes. See, he doesn't have any power unless you give it to him. If you resist him standing in the armor of God, there's very little that he can do. There's nothing he can do. Are you listening to me? Now, the Greek word translated schemes, maybe your Bible says wiles, you know, is actually the word methodia. Methodia, that's the Greek word. It's where we get the word method. So that means the devil's a Methodist. No, no. So anyways, method, sorry, just kidding. The word methodia means strategy, trick, or plan. So when you are offended, you need to realize something. This is all the enemy's plan. It's not God's will for you to be offended. Huh? Jesus is not setting traps for his children. This is the enemy's plan. Are you listening to me? So, something happened, real or imagined, I don't know, and you feel, I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be hurt. I have a right to be annoyed. Perhaps, but don't take the bait. It's a trap. It's a trap. Countless Christians, only heaven knows. I don't talk about all over the world now and throughout the ages. Countless Christians have left the church because they were offended. The enemy is walking about like a hungry lion. I was watching, and I've shared this in years gone by, but I was watching a TV program with my kids many years ago. It was a nature program about you know, lions in the African Serengeti and all that. And I thought it was interesting as we watched this program together, you know, you can learn something <laughs> from, from observing nature even. So I, I noticed that the lions, no matter how strong and brawny they are, they cannot tackle an entire herd 
of wildebeest. They're these big, you know, wild animals, kind of like, you know, kind of like an ox type animal. And they, they would travel together, you know, maybe hundreds of them at a time, maybe, maybe thousands of them at a time. Well, one lion, maybe even two or three lions can't attack a whole herd of wildebeest. It's too much. So the lions look for the young, the weak, or those who are hurt. So what is the first thing the lion does? He looks at the herd. He's just checking it out. Before he makes a move, he's looking. He's looking for the young, the weak, or those who are injured. Then when he spots that one, he and his comrades, it may just be two or three of them, they endeavor to isolate that one animal from the rest of the herd. They isolate him. They separate him. And then they surround him. What do they do do next? They tear him up. They tear him up. That's what came to my mind when I read the scripture. The devil walks about like a roaring lion. He's looking for a Christian who's inexperienced or immature in the things of God. Or one who's in a weakened condition. Or one who feels hurt. Or feels offended. And what does he do? He maneuvers to separate that Christian from the rest of the flock of God. Because he knows when you are out of fellowship with other believers, you are at your most vulnerable point. You're weak. By your, in, in the herd, if you will, it's harder. It's, it's just very hard. Very hard. He can't, there's not much he can do. But he can isolate you by yourself. And then he's got you surrounded. And I'm telling you the truth, he'll tear you up. He will tear you up. So people, something happened, thoughts come to their mind, and they, and they nurse those thoughts, they nurture those thoughts, and then they become offended. They become angry, like a simmering anger. And of course, they hide it. They're real clever. They know that it's wrong to be offended, so they say, oh, I'm not offended. I don't know why he's talking about this. You know, but, 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 it, but, but they're just lying to themselves. They're just lying. They're kidding themselves, you see. And so, you know, they become offended and, and it grows. The more they meditate on it, the more they think about it, it just grows and grows. And when you're offended, everything you see makes you offended. Everything you see just reaffirms what you already believe. Everybody's against me. Nobody likes me. I'm not being treated right. And everything you see just reinforces that thought. You, it kind of... It blinds you to certain things. And then people, they, 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 they leave the church because they think they're punishing us. When in reality, they're making themselves a prey. I've never seen somebody get offended and they were just blessed and they flourished and, and God just used them and signs and wonders and answers to prayer and blessing and pro- never. I've been here 26 years. I've never seen that. 27 years. I've never seen that. I have seen people get offended and their life just dried up. And guess what? 
Captured. It's real quiet today. Now, folks, I would not ask you to remain in any church where you were genuinely being abused. I, I wouldn't tell anybody to do that. If, if people are, are taking advantage of you, if they're, if they're trying to hurt you, I, I wouldn't tell anybody to stay in a place like that. I mean, if I went to a restaurant and I got food poisoning, and that happened to me one time, I wouldn't say, all right, from now on, I will never go to another restaurant. I just won't go to that restaurant. And I certainly wouldn't say from now on, I'll never eat food. No, no, I'm going to eat food. I'm just not going to eat food from that place. Amen. So, I mean, you know, we're pretty selective. Maybe we are. We're pretty selective about where we eat our food. We're very selective about where we send our kids to school. We don't just say, well, there's a school right there. Yeah, it's across the street. That's easy. Let's go there. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll send our kids way over on the other side of the country because we think that's a better school. But when it comes to church, sometimes we're not very selective. Just whatever, just go there, whatever. No, I'd be careful. So I wouldn't ask you to stay in any church where you are genuinely being abused. But often, like I said, not, maybe not always, but often people are offended over a small thing, a trivial matter. No one ate your potato salad at the church potluck dinner. Oh, I can't believe it. The meeting's over, and here's your bowl, you know, of, of, of fried rice, or here's your, your, your dish, and no one even touched it. Huh. Huh, huh. I slaved in the kitchen for hours. Ha! <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Or the person next to you didn't shake your hand in the church service. Let's all shake hands. <laughs> or they looked at you funny. Maybe they looked at you funny because you didn't eat their potato salad. I don't know. You know, there's a <laughs> you're offended and they're offended because you're offended. Or the usher made you sit in a place that you didn't like. And you're like, hey, I'm not sitting there. I want to sit on the front row. No, no, you sit there. <laughs> I'm being, I mean, this is against the Geneva Convention. I mean, this is against the human rights. I mean, no one should ever have to endure this kind of treatment. Or maybe the usher asked you to leave the service or depart from the service because your baby was screaming its head off. And the usher said, can you believe it? I just can't believe it. Well, for the sake of everybody else's sanity, would you just give us a break for a few minutes? <laughs> huh? uh, years ago, we prayed for one woman. She's probably not here. Years ago, we, we prayed for one woman. And, and, and I don't even remember, but the power of God touched her and she fell to the, fell to the, the floor, you know? And the ushers uh, took a little, we used to have, I guess we don't, a little green cloth and just kind of covered her legs as a common courtesy. Just so we don't have to look at her underpant. <laughs> and she didn't like it. No, not, not the power of God knocking her down to the floor. That wasn't her complaint. She didn't like the little cloth. So she got offended and never came back. So go to some church that doesn't have any power and no little green cloths. <laughs> now we don't, I don't think we have those little green cloths anymore. People are too touchy. <laughs> so now if the power of God hits you, where you lay is where you lay. <laughs> Amen. If you are t 
touchy. I think some people, there's an invisible sign over their head that says fragile. Like a basket of eggs. No matter what you do, it's going to break. If you are easily offended, then according to Psalm 119, verse 165, you're not a lover of the word. Some people, and of course, they're not, they're not here this morning. Some people are offended because in their minds, they have been wronged. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't, but in their perception, they think I've been insulted. You know, just because somebody says something to you and you perceive that as an insult, it doesn't necessarily mean the person meant harm. Haven't you ever said something and it kind of came out the wrong way? So if, if, and you know, when people get angry with you, you say, that's not what I meant. Well, maybe that's not what they meant either. Right? Praise the Lord. Isn't it amazing when it comes to others, we judge them by their actions. But when it comes to ourselves, we judge us by our intentions. Well, I didn't mean to do that. Maybe they didn't mean to do that either. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they don't like you. Okay. Maybe you remind her of her first husband. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But your attitude should be, this is my church. God called me to be here. Amen. And, 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 and this, is, this is the family of God. This is, this is my family. I say this all the time, folks. Look around the room for just a moment. Look around. When we get to heaven, we're going to look at each other for a long, long, long time. How long? Forever. Some of you can't even bear to look at somebody on the other row. That that person's mansion is probably going to be right next to your mansion in heaven. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. This is a mistake. No, it's not a mistake. (laughs) It's on purpose. So we might as well learn to get along down here. Amen. Do you think when you get to heaven, there'll be this little solitary confinement room somewhere where you can just be alone and play, you know, watch Cartoon Network and play PlayStation 2 or something like that? No, no, you're going to have to mix with the rest of the body. So get over it. Someone said something or did something that you consider to be insensitive. But on the other hand, There are others who are offended because someone said something or did something that's right. And their conscience is pricked. If you speak the truth of God's word, not everybody's going to applaud. Not everybody's going to pat you on the back and say, that's good. Some of them are going to say, get lost. They don't want to hear that. Amen. I, I didn't come here, you know, try to make everybody my best bosom buddy. Because that ain't ever going to happen. My job is to speak the truth in love. I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but I'm trying to help somebody. But if I speak the word of God, somebody's not going to like it. I've decided I'm not watering down the truth just because somebody stares at me while I'm up here. 
Well, back to you. <laughs> I keep threatening I'm going to put a big mirror on the back, and you can look at what I look at every Sunday, and then maybe you'll learn to smile. Some people are offended simply because they just didn't like the way it was done. Just, I, just, I just didn't like the way. The Bible tells me, and I'm, on, I'm coming to a close here in a minute, don't get offended. <laughs> the Bible tells me that Jesus went into the synagogue of Nazareth, in Nazareth. And the people, when they heard him, and he not only preached, but he must have testified, the people were astonished. And they said to one another, hey, 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 we know his family. Wait a minute. I went to school with his brothers. I dated his sister. I mean, I, you know. <laughs> and, they were, and they were basically saying, who does he think he is? You think you're better than us? What? We know who you are. You're nothing special. That's what they're saying. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, and they took offense at him. If people got offended because of Jesus, don't fall to pieces if they get offended because of you. You're in good company. They got offended. And notice the results of their offense. Verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there. Offense will keep you from being healed. So maybe you need to make up your mind. Maybe you need to have an epiphany moment. Well, do I want to continue being offended and sick? Or do I want to just forgive and be healed? Amen. You need to realize this. God does not always do things the way that you would prefer. In other words, you cannot dictate the terms to God. Now, God, I want to be healed, but I want it this way. Tomorrow, uh, after I say eat lunch around 12, tomorrow at 2.30, I'd like an angel. No, 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 you, you don't dictate the terms. You don't tell God how to do his job. In case you're a little confused about this, he is God and you are not. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. And he does not, God does not always use the person that you would choose. He might send somebody to your house and you're like, eh, wrong tribe. <laughs> no, no, no. God will intentionally send somebody that you find, your flesh finds displeasing. Amen. Being offended can keep you from your miracle. Remember the story of Naaman? The Syrian, he was a general in the country of Syria, had won evidently great battles. He's a man of, of great uh, responsibility and authority, and, but he's a leper. And he heard that there's a, a prophet in Israel, so he goes, he goes first to the king of Israel. So he must be someone of importance. He can just go right to the king. And the king sends him to Elisha. So he and his men and their chariots, they go to Elisha's house, and Elisha didn't even answer the front door. 
It's not that he's not at home. He's at home, but he didn't even go to the door. He sent his servant. He sent his servant. And the servant said, the man of God says, dip in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. Have a nice day. And Naaman got mad. He wasn't happy. Oh, I've heard from God. He was mad. He flew into a rage. And he began saying, are not all the rivers of, of Syria and Damascus better than all the rivers in, Jordan, in Israel? And, and he's all upset. Why? He's offended. He's really insulted. Why? I'm, doesn't he know who I am? I'm this great general. And I thought he would come out, greet me, you know, flatter me, slobber all over me, and I could tell him how great I am, and then maybe he'd pray and I'd be healed. And it didn't happen that way. God doesn't always do things the way you expect. Just because you believe God for your miracle, that doesn't mean you know exactly how he's going to work it out. He's offended. He's very offended. It hurt his pride. See, God knows there's a little issue here. You don't just have leprosy, buddy. You've got some heart issues. But his servants calmed him down. Said, you know, if he'd asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. Why not just do this? So he went, dipped in the River Jordan seven times. He was healed. And this time he came back and Elisha met him. Why? I think you got the lesson. Amen. Hallelujah. Just because something is not your style, that doesn't mean it's not God. Well, I really kind of want sort of a particular, like the church I grew up in, kind of a particular Baptist style. Well, that may not be the way God wants to minister to you. I tell this story all the time, but I had an aunt who had cancer. My mother took her to... Uh, uh, Rama Bible College. They had healing classes there, you know, every day in the afternoon. So she took my aunt there so that she could hear the word of God. Those people could pray for her. Well, they came back and, and, uh, and, you know, my aunt was not healed. In fact, later on, she died. She passed away. And so after the funeral and all of that, I asked my mother, well, those classes, those healing school you went to, was that helpful? I mean, was it, was it any, was it uh, valuable? And she said, oh, it was beautiful. She said every message, they had, they had another brother teaching there. Every message the man shared, it was like, boom, hit the target. It's, it's like he knew your aunt. Every issue he dealt with, it's just like he's reading her mail. Everything. That's, I know her. And that's exactly the, the trouble she has. She needs to deal with these things, but she didn't like it. She didn't like the music they sang. That's not her style. And, and, and she didn't like the way that the preacher was dressed. And she didn't like his accent because he's from another part of the country. He's got a little southern accent. So she didn't like that. And, and she didn't like that, that it's too cold or it's too hot or it's too long or it's not long enough. And yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, you've got terminal cancer. The doctors have said there's nothing we can do for you. You're going to die. And here you are critiquing the preacher. You are a fool, just like Nazareth. She was offended. You will not get your miracle as long as you stay offended. And God, 
God can use other styles of music than just your preference. God can use other styles of preaching than just what you like. Amen. Glory to God. Oh, one more scripture, then uh, we'll have to go. We'll have to go on to the next thing. In Matthew chapter, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, Jesus said, And blessed is the one who was not offended by me. Nowhere did Jesus ever say, and blessed are the offended. <laughs> Many Christians, and this is an important thing, I, want, I do want to say this. Many Christians are offended at God. It's not really the, the, the usher or, or the pastor or, or whatever. It's God. And many times they're offended because life did not happen the way they had hoped. In this verse, actually, Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came on the scene in a blaze of glory. He had the, he had the ear of the whole nation. Kings and priests and religious leaders listened to him. Most people were wondering if he's not the Messiah. He certainly was God's man of the hour, but he knew his assignment. He knew, he knew what his job was. His job was simply to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He himself said in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. So he knew that. But John was arrested, not because he broke the law, but because Herod didn't like the comment he made about his family. He's arrested, thrown in jail. And while he was languishing in prison, he began to have second thoughts. He began to doubt. I can only guess, but I imagine that John felt let down. I didn't think it would end this way. He even sent his followers to Jesus asking, are you the one? Have we made a mistake? I thought, I thought you were the one. Maybe that's wrong. He began to doubt. Life didn't happen the way he expected. Maybe, and again, I don't know, but maybe in his heart he envisioned himself serving alongside of Jesus and both of them together would just restore the kingdom to Israel. But that didn't happen. Or perhaps, who knows, maybe he saw himself going up in a whirlwind to heaven like Elijah. After all, the Bible says he came in the spirit or the anointing of Elijah. But instead, he was beheaded in his jail cell. Perhaps he was disappointed in God. Maybe he thought, I've been so faithful. I sacrificed. I did everything God asked me to do. I thought the Lord would rescue me from this place, and he didn't. You can understand now. You can understand how he might feel. Maybe he felt like a failure. It looks like evil is winning the day. It looks like everything I'd hoped would happen for my nation, it's going the opposite direction right now. But Jesus sent word, tell John everything you see and hear. Tell him about the miracles. 
Tell him about the healing. Tell him about the power of the gospel to change lives. Tell him also this. Don't be offended. There are lots of people in the body of Christ who've been serving God for years and years and years. And it's not that they did anything wrong, but things didn't work out the way they had imagined. And now they harbor disappointment in God. They're angry at God, truthfully. You know, the thing is, John died by himself in a dark, dingy prison cell in a very ignoble way. And he didn't have like a proper funeral. His disciples just came and buried the body. It wasn't like this big grand event where all of Israel came and saluted him and sang three songs about him and all that stuff. It wasn't anything like that. But on the other hand, in the passage that I'm quoting, basically it's Matthew chapter 11 from verse 7 down to verse 14. In that passage, Jesus himself is giving the eulogy for his funeral. So, I mean, if you were going to invite anybody to speak at your funeral, the Son of God, that would be quite an amazing thing. And Jesus said this in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What an amazing accommodation. What an amazing thing to say of anyone who's ever been born up to this point. Nobody is greater than John the Baptist. That's that's no small compliment coming from the, the Son of God. Evidently, Jesus thought more highly of John than John thought of himself. He's saying, you're not a failure. John, you're not a failure. You finished your course. And heaven will reward you. Even if others have achieved greater success than you, that doesn't mean you failed in God's eyes. Blessed is he, he says, that's not offended because of me. Don't let the devil sour your attitude toward the things of God, toward the service of God. So in closing, don't take the bait. Don't become a prisoner. If you've wandered away, come back to your senses and come home. And that'll be the best choice you could ever make. Would you stand with me to your feet? Praise the Lord.